Throughout human history, societies have grappled with fundamental questions of how to organize themselves, the proper relationship between the individual and the state. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we confess that a little intellectual elite can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. This alternative vision argues that ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs. That order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereign. Now we can see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order. The international order that we have worked for generations to build. And today that new world is struggling to be born, the dream of a new world order. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be the third and final part of the interview that I did with Stephen Grera from the History of the Papacy podcast. I'll give you a little refresher of where we left off last time in the last section that I played in the previous episode. So Stephen was talking about some of the leverage that the church had. He talked about the power to excommunicate, which was a very big deal back then. Your eternal security for a lot of people was the only thing that they could count on. And if you had that revoked from you, then that wasn't so good for you. You didn't like that. That didn't play so well. And that was for the common man as well as kings. And so he talked about some of the soft powers that the church had in influencing people and maybe whispering into one king's ear to support or not to support another king and influencing some of those political dynamics as well. And then he also talked about how big of a deal it was for a banking house to have the Pope and the church as a client. If you were the papal banker, then you were making bank. You were making all kinds of money, and it was pretty much guaranteed. The Medici had this for a very long time, and with that, that means that, number one, the Medici were very tied in with the church and had influence within the church. That's often how they got those contracts. There's some interesting backstories to that. But also, the church had leverage over the Medici as well, because if they were to withdraw the use of the Medici Bank for the church business, then that puts a big dent in the Medici Bank and the Medici reputation overall, and so it's definitely not something that they want to happen. And so the church did have a lot of leverage in a lot of different ways over the different players that were involved in society in a big way at this time period. So I'm just going to play where I pick up after that. I respond from those points that Stephen had made, and you can listen to that now. That's definitely very similar to how the state today has a lot of resources. They, they're they definitely at the top of the food chain because they can print money and they have a monopoly on pretty much anything they want a monopoly on. And the state is the ultimate power. And with that, they can use that leverage over, if we look at the parallel I'm making here, over corporations and big tech for one group of corporations. But corporations as a whole, they are beholden to the state because the state has all of this power. They have all of these resources. They have this 
position. And with that, you mentioned how the church could go to multiple different nobles of different areas and pit them against each other, or they could go from one banking house to another, and that would basically bankrupt one, and that would send the other sky high. We see the same with governments. They can talk to many different corporations, and they can pit them against each other. They can pit industries against each other. They can do all of these same things. And if they switch a government contract from one company to another, that's a really big deal. There are people that say that that's one of the reasons why Kennedy was assassinated was because he had he had said that he was going to cancel a Boeing contract and switch it to another corporation. And so there are people that take this to the extreme of that's why one of our presidents got assassinated was because of switching a government contract. So whether that's true or not, the point is that it does have a really big impact and the state does play a huge role in this. And looking back at this time, the church played a huge role in society. They were the ones that were oftentimes moving the chess pieces on the board, and these chess pieces were entire regions, entire proto-nation states, and nobles, and knights, and they were moving them around and doing what they wanted to play out their kind of master plan, so to say. And that's the role that the church played at this point in time. So it definitely seems very similar to what we see today. And as we look at some of these other influences that were coming into play, and we've been talking about banking and finance, the other technology that was kind of a big deal that's often overlooked, it's one that I came across listening to one of your episodes is what really highlighted it and got me to look more into it. And that would be the technology of Arabic script. And could you tell us a little bit about what that was, as well as the impact that that had? The um, I focused in um, when you asked this question was um, on the invention of zero of the the numerical the mathematical concept of the zero <clears throat> that was a huge change. It was actually a little fun fact. It was probably invented. Uh, there's a couple of different theories, but it was. Uh, uh, a common theory is that it was actually invented by uh, uh, one of these groups of Christians that had gone into schism a thousand, uh, 1300 years before the 1500s, and they wound up moving into the far, far Middle East, and many of them settled in India, and they became scholars of the Islamic Empire in India, and they invented this um, zero which led to some different interesting innovations like double entry accounting, which we still use to this day. We obviously still use zero to this day, but zero made manipulating numbers so, so much easier than what Europeans had and um, you know most of the world honestly had before that time. You could focus in your, t you talked a lot about data, once you had some of these really base, some of these basic uh, tools, you could keep so much more accurate data, and you could gather so much better, so much data, better data, which could help you make better business decisions because you knew where certain funds were, and you could project things out much easier. I mean, with um, 
Roman numerals and some of the other uh, tools that they had, doing simple multiplication was an arduous task. They had tools like abacuses and things like that where you could do a lot of things with those. But once you had the zero and Arabic numerals, you could really make it made things just dramatically different. And of course, where do these innovations always usually go first? It's in commercial enterprises. Yeah, definitely. And we see that you had already mentioned in banking. So you see this used in families like the Medici and other banking houses. A lot of people credit the Medici for the invention of double entry accounting methods. And whether that is actually the case or not, I don't know. But that is something that is definitely tied together that people do mention. And I saw cited many places. But overall, like you mentioned, we see this play out in more of a corporate setting, in a consumerist setting, a business setting. And we see that today. There are plenty of parallels of new technology that are making it possible to move money around and to plan and make business decisions and to do very complicated mathematical equations and all this kind of stuff. We are seeing technological changes like that now. And just like in this historic time period, it wasn't just the printing press. That wasn't the only technology that was coming into play and was really making a big impact. You had other things such as Arabic script that was coming into play and really making a really big change that was more behind the scenes, but it had a huge impact on how people were operating. And so we see that there are multiple aspects of technology. We might say that something like blockchain in modern times might be one of these technologies that creates a new way to do something and a new way to organize and these new systems and ways to use algorithms and the digital world that exists nowadays we see that there are many technologies that are factoring in. It's not just the internet writ large. It's all of these different things and all these technological changes, and they all do have impacts, and they have impacts in different ways. Some are obvious, some are not. Some are on all of society. Some are just on businesses. Some just relate to specific areas or markets, but they all set the stage for all of these things that are going on and all of these changes that are occurring. So with all this, uh, I did have a question about the Reformation related to money, and that would just be, follow the money. Who funded the Reformation? Where did these resources come from? Because this was a very big movement, and I would guess that a few monks probably didn't have a whole lot of money. Yeah, I mean, you're pretty much right. Martin Luther was really lucky that Early on, he caught the attention of some major lords. One was a guy named Frederick, the Elector of Saxony. He had a really powerful position and obviously was able, you know, had his fingertips on a lot of different um, resources. That's what got the ball rolling because of all that history. We talked all that conflict that was between the German states, this the Holy Roman Empire and northern Italy and the um, France, the places that stayed aligned with the Catholics. 
they had a lot of problems, these individual principalities in Germany. Remember at that time, there was no country of Germany. It was thousands of little municipalities. Some of them were bigger, like this uh, elector of Saxony. His area was a little bit bigger, but there was many, many smaller ones. And each one of those had a lot of incentive to stay independent and to gain independence from the Holy Roman Emperor, who was nominally in charge of all of these places. The Holy Roman Emperor, for better or for worse, and for um, in sickness and in health, was really connected strongly to the Pope, and they strongly supported the Pope. So being against the Pope, was a good way to be against and to exert some independence from the Holy Roman Emperor. So why not start feeding money and feeding resources into this Mar- into Martin Luther who, and these reformers who are tr- starting to push back against the power of the Pope? You know, so they have the uh, uh, Martin Luther and these these lords who want independence. Martin Luther wants some independence and he wants some reform of the church. Let's form a coalition with these other people who want some independence and some reform. And let's run with it and see where it goes. Yeah, that's uh, what a surprise where you have a largely influential group with ulterior motives that get behind this largely societal ground level change that's going on and you have this social movement that's coming up and it's largely funded and pushed for political reasons and others for power we we definitely see that time and time again and we see that influence of where the money comes from for these things that that just aren't quite apparent when you look at it from a very broad perspective and when you maybe hear about it in history class in high school, they're probably not going to mention any of that. But that's the reality. There's money behind these movements. There is money behind all these movements. It, it happens in modern times, just like it happened um, in those times. And we saw something such as Western banks that were largely funding the Nazi party and the rise of Nazi Germany. And that was money that was going behind a movement that then they you know, definitely didn't want to get out there to the public and that later got out there. But they, they definitely didn't want to have that known, especially at the time. And we saw similar things happen in the civil rights movement in the sexual revolution movement that was largely financed and backed by men, actually, because they had some ulterior motives as well. And there are many examples of this with things like climate change and many other things where you have these movements that start off as a local movement and they start off kind of from this pure perspective but they start off pure and they end up something totally different it doesn't really play out that way so as we look at the reformation these people were wanting theological independence so to say they wanted religious independence people like luther that uh, originally wanted to just reform the church was kind of the idea but as we get on to these later time periods it was already kind of set that they would be something different the protestants were going to be different than the catholics and not a part of the same church it was going to be different a split 
And so with this, it went from being this idea of a religious split that I can interpret the Bible the way that I see fit, and I see that it says this, which is against what you see. So you follow your religion on that side, and I will follow my interpretation on this side. And that was the idea. But then it ended up being that all of these nobles kind of took over and centralized their power, and we have the creation of the nation state, and all this stuff that was very different than these religious movements that were happening. So could you make a few comments on on how that played out? It really led to a really, really, really unsettled time for quite some time in Europe, particularly Northern Europe, Before the Reformation, things like witch burnings and burning of heretics was pretty, pretty rare. There's a handful of times where somebody was burned at the stake. Burning at the stake and a capital punishment of heretics or uh, people who had ideas that were against the mainstream, it was a big, there was a judicial process, there was mandatory reviews and, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, just an entire judicial process to have somebody. Now, you could say like in a case of like somebody like Joan of Arc, that maybe it was a kangaroo trial, but there was a trial. She had a defense. There was a there was a, a a rule of law of such. It's really in this time after the Reformation that leads into the time of the Thirty Years' War that there's just a total breakdown in society. That's where you're seeing tens of thousands of people being killed in, in as witches. It, it led all the way into the Americas with the Salem witch trials. The Salem witch trials were actually a pretty calm affair compared to the things that were going on in Europe. Uh, the, the Salem witch trials were sort of at the end of that. You know, it had sort of um, faded. It was burning itself out. Whereas in, um, the, no pun intended, yeah, sure. in Europe, the in Europe, it was just insanity how how much people were going against neighbors and neighbors against neighbors towns against towns the 30 years war i've read someplace i've read that in germany someplace didn't recover their pre-30 years war population for hundreds of years almost to the time of world war one that's how devastating these wars were because when martin luther set the stage that if you don't like the interpretation, you can go into schism. Well, there were some people who didn't like his interpretation either, and they went into schism with him. And there was people who didn't like their interpretation and went into schism with them. So you can see where that leads to very quickly, things are things that were very much under control in the 1400s and the 1300s got very quickly out of control in the 1500s. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal. There's a lot going on there, and it definitely seems like it spiraled out of control a little bit, but ideas do have power, and they do make change, and that change is not always as was originally intended, nor is it always a good thing, so to say. And so there's 
a lot that happens. There's unintended consequences, and that's a part of history as well as a part of modern day. So with that, could you talk a little bit about kind of how the Thirty Years' War played out? Like, who was involved and what was going on and what was the result afterwards? What were the structures? Because uh, I do know that the church largely lost a lot of its power, but it still was a player. It still was a power. And nobles, they definitely gained more power. But how did this, how did this play out through these wars that were taking place? The Thirty Years' War, it's a huge topic, another one of these huge topics, but it, uh, it, bas- it started with some of these nobles who supported Luther. They went against the Holy Roman Emperor, and they were completely crushed, but then as they got more steam, they were able to, more towns started to flip over to the Lutheranism and Reformationism. They... So the then all these armies just start attacking each other. There was some there was some diplomatic things that had happened that caused war to break out, but it was just it was a time of just brutal, brutal conflict. Many of the the local leaders and lords, they hired mercenary bands. And these mercenary bands, they might be made up of all Catholics and then go work for a reformationist uh, lord and there might be reformationist bands that went to work for catholic lords and there might be mixed bands like these mercenary bands for the most part were not fire breathers for the religion they were there just to go for whoever paid the most for their mercenary services so that as you can see that the, each one of these lords who wanted to be in the fight, they had to raise tons and tons of money to support the war, but they really didn't have the system set up for that. And that's where they start developed, developing taxation systems that, you know, that would be more recognizable to us today. A part of the, when the 30, war, 30 years war ended, was the a, a thing called the Treaty of Westphalia, and that was really the birth of the or one of the births of the modern the modern state as we see it. You could not say that in many respects that say the Roman Empire was not a state in the way that the sovereign state is in twenty twenty. Uh, Earth, you know, the United States is a sovereign nation within its own borders, and Canada and Russia, Germany, you name it. the The world, the state, the governments of countries did not function in that way. That's really an outgrowth of the Thirty Years' War. So that I mean, that's really that's the big outcome of the Thirty Years' War is the state system that we live with today. Now, as a as how that affected the Catholic Church, in a way, it depends on again what perspective you look at it from. As from a Catholic perspective, they're converting people. Yeah, they lost they lost this area of influence in Northern Europe. England would leave the uh, would become a Reformation country under Henry VIII. The uh, not all of Germany, but parts of Germany, parts of Scandinavia, they would become 
Reformation, but the uh, almost the entire Americas, everywhere where the Spanish and the Portuguese and the French were going all over the world, they're converting people to Catholicism. So for the from the Catholic perspective, it's a it's a major loss, uh, but it's also a loss of an area of influence. But I, they don't see it in the perspective of say the the Anglo perspective or the the Reformation perspective that this is a part of the grand scope of the of progress that we move from progress that the reformation's a huge progress over catholicism and then the enlightenment and then um you know the uh the um the progressive movement like we just it's not viewed in that way that it's a grand scope of history of progression that's just not the way it's viewed from the catholic perspective that the Roman Catholic Church had to reform after the after the Thirty Years' War and the Reformation, but you know they're just not looking at it through that same lens. Yeah, and I guess this has come up multiple times that a lot of this is a matter of perspective, and different things are happening and things are changing, systems are changing, economies are changing, the way people live, the way people worship, the way people fight, the way people do business, all of these things are changing. So yes, there are going to be some positive aspects at the same time as some negative aspects. And largely the Western world today probably has more of a reformed view on this historical period. But like you say, the Catholic Church was also making some gains, and they did have some very positive things. I know Isabella and Ferdinand were some of the uh, most powerful people in that time period that they lived in, and they were very supportive of the Catholic Church. So there's definitely a a positive aspect to this. The Catholic Church was not just going away. They weren't completely defeated, and now they're irrelevant. That's not the case. They're actually still very relevant today, not only from a religious perspective, but from a political perspective as well. The Pope does have a lot of say, a lot of power, a lot of sway, let's say. It's it's more subtle. He can't just come out and tell a president of a country to do a certain thing. That's not really how it works. But there is a lot of political pull that the Pope has largely through the masses of followers that Catholicism has today, millions of followers. And with followers, especially in a more democratic society, comes a lot of power and a lot of pull. Yeah, I mean, in the in the modern speak again, he's a mega influencer. It's a it's a soft power that when you go to church, you're hearing a certain message, and there still are a billion Catholics and uh, you know a billions of Christians around the world, and they're getting a certain message, and a big percentage of them look to the Pope for their message and it might not be the same influence or the same level of influence as in the middle ages but there still definitely is a a significant level of influence yeah so i guess we've kind of caught up historically to 
my modern comparisons and probably a little past. I don't think we have gone through this 30 years war period in modern society. So it'll be interesting to see if there is a parallel to that and what that might be. But before we get into looking at potential aspects of the future and how this plays out today, are there any other parallels that that stood out to you or that you've come across when you are looking at this historical period that you really focus on and modern times? One of the things that I really noticed is the the level that academics have who are institutional academics. And when they say something, it can almost become you're not allowed to debate it unless you're an institutional academic and they get locked up. I mean, you use the we use the term ivory tower, but they the, the, all the way. Luther was an academic. Oh, all the people who he debated with were academics and they had the ear of the power structure at the time. And I think that's a that is a parallel that can be made today in my you know in my own opinion that there's a lot of academics who have the direct ear of the most powerful people in the you know in the entire world and you're really not allowed to debate with them if you're not also in those circles Yeah, that's definitely something I see a lot, especially in, well, I guess from two angles that I see, we would have the angle of our modern education system based off the Prussian education system, which is very focused on respecting authority and that you have an expert that's at the front of the room. They know everything. So everything they say is true and everything that they tell you to read is going to be true. Don't question it. And they are going to tell you what you need to learn. They're going to tell you how to learn it. There are many arguments that parents have in today's modern public school systems where math teachers are telling kids that this is the way you solve this math problem. And if you do it any other way, it's wrong even though there are often many different ways of solving different types of math problems, and you can get the correct answer, and uh, many would argue it would be a correct way, a correct way. There is not necessarily one correct way, but if that expert at the front of the room tells you this is the way it is, then kids are taught that's the way it is. And so... Yeah, expertism. Yeah, yeah, and you've got the studies. The other aspect would be studies that have been done about people being willing to follow orders of authority. You had the famous one where someone in a lab coat was telling um, these different participants to shock somebody in another room, and it got to the point where they knew that this person was likely going to die if they keep shocking them. But this expert in a lab coat tells them to keep doing it, and so they just keep doing it. And it it seems almost like people have been brainwashed would be maybe an extreme word, but maybe not. Um, People are, they, they respect authority and trust experts to an extent that is not healthy. If you see a news Mm -hmm. article or a news program or any kind of media outlet that says, well, experts say that X, Y, Z, then that's it. There is no question of where these experts got their information. What, What study are you citing if it's studies say that blah, blah, blah? Well, we don't really ask these next layer questions because we have been brought up in a system that tells us the experts are the ones that are always right. They know best. And it, that's going to have an effect. It is having an effect on today's society. I, I've talked with other people about an issue of 
media literacy or uh, true discernment where we can read, we can write, we can use technology to get information, but society as a whole is having a really hard time with discerning truth and with really taking it to that next level. People look at the surface level of something that's presented to them, and they might even go to a secondary level and some of these secondary effects, but they will pretty much never take it any further than that. And when that's as far as you go, and you don't actually go to source documentation, you don't question things, you don't look at other perspectives, you have your own little echo chamber, your own little bubble, and that's where you get all your news, and you don't look at anything else, well, are you really going to be able to hear the truth and know the truth or really understand what's going on? And I would argue that, no, you're not going to be able to do that, unfortunately, but that's largely where society is today. And I think you really nailed it on the head where we have these experts and these academics that are looked up to by society as being the experts. And so I'd like to carry this into the final thing that I wanted to cover. And that would be that if the parallel plays out in modern times, what might it look like to have the state power fracture and this could be state as in national countries that might be fracturing in their power, or it could be international, things like the UN, the EU, the World Bank. We definitely see fractures in both of those different scopes between countries as well as international groups. But if state power is diminishing, a lot like church power diminished in this historical time period, and we saw that the nobility rose up and kind of filled that gap, filled those roles and gained a lot of power. And so my parallel would be corporations are consolidating power. They're merging together. They are dominating their respective industries. They are filling a lot of these gaps that are starting to be seen by governments. And if this does play out, then what might happen? What, what, what effects do you see as being potentials that might be likely? And one of the influences that has come up in our conversation would be the change of technology and how rapidly that's changing. People don't understand. Kids know how to use all this technology, but don't really have the wisdom or discernment to filter and to totally process and digest information. And so they rely on this technology, they trust this technology, but they don't truly get it. And the same is true when we talk about how society as a whole is looking up to experts and academics as the experts, and they trust everything they say, but they don't really get it. They're not going through multiple perspectives. They're not digging into things. And so I personally see that if corporations are starting to fill this gap that is being left by these anti-establishment movements where people don't trust the government, people don't want to rely on the government, the government's really expensive and it is very inefficient, they waste a lot of money, they're, you know, if there's an economic crash, then people will blame the government for ruining everything. And so corporations might step in, but society, the way that we are describing it here, talking about relations to technology and trusting experts... I think that society is very open to a more technocratic 
governance system where there is technology that's being used to gather data, to gather people's opinions, maybe votes, a fairly democratic way, possibly. And people would trust if there was a system that was set in place that would work according to code, that would analyze data and be impartial. And I I see that people would be very open to something like that. But what are some different aspects of playing this stuff out in your head? Um, we're just throwing around potential things. We, we can't tell the future. But what are some aspects that have come up in your mind? And this question, it's, it's deceptively simple, but it's completely mind-blowing, too, at the same time. It's a huge it's a it's a huge question and i'm no i'm somebody of no particular expertise on, you know talking about experts but i think that you know it can go either way i think that most people think that if you just have enough data and enough information you can solve any problem and so i think that that it's going to be such a big push as to categorize and Every bit of data is going to be logged and tracked and uh, analyzed and manipulated, but there's only so far that that can go, I think, at least at this point. You know, it's still ultimately human beings making decisions. Now, I think as far as how governments and corporations, I think you could really see in a lot of ways that the state could potentially use corporations to sort of rent out some of their the state's primary functions to them because it, it not only is cheaper but it's also the the scapegoat like with the popes if you don't like the way one banking house has done things or if you don't think that they're acting in your uh, in your best interest you can yank that contract from them and give it to somebody else. I think that that's going to be a powerful tool for governments in the future is to use corporations more to do some of their more, you know, some of the things that in, you know, previous times have been felt to be their core competencies and their core uh, uh, necessities of government that I think that the the government is going to start renting some of those things out. And we see a lot of historical historical examples of governments renting out their functions to for-profit organizations. Or in the case of medieval Europe, uh, things like the guilds. I think we'll see things like that come back more so because there is the technology is going to make that a lot easier and it will make it much it'll make be more cost efficient and it will look better for state state entities now in the in the bigger scale what's going to happen to the state i mean i think we see that experiments such as the the eu where you know trying to consolidate many different states into one mega state it has its ups and its downs because, you know, with the humanity, localism versus top up versus top bottom, there's always got to be a mix there. 
that mix is going to change. Technology changes that mix a lot of what is better on the spectrum, localism versus uh, higher up control of government. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something that I have gone over many times in my podcast. And as I wrapped up season one, I did some overview episodes. And one of those, the main theme was centralization versus decentralization. And largely talking about what you just brought up, that there is this battle between this more localized system and way of governing things, governance systems, and a more centralized version where you have much a much greater scope that is um, over a bit, basically like an umbrella over a larger group of people and wrapping it all up into one group, such as these international experiments. Um, you've you've mentioned some of the reasons why the church had the power that they had, as well as why the state has the power that they have, and a lot of that had to do with. I picked out three things that just thinking about it as you were giving your response came to me. We've got security as one of the things. We've got resources, wealth, money, something of that regard. And then we also have the respect that is given to this institution or authority from the people. And as I play out these potential changes and shifts that are going on in today's world, it's interesting because if we look at the security aspect Let's use the U.S. as the best example. It's the one I am the most fluent in. And the U.S. has doesn't really have a great record in modern times with promoting security. We have stirred up all kinds of trouble in the Middle East and are somehow surprised when we have slaughtered thousands of people in a country that most people would argue we have no right to be in. And then some of them want to come back and kill some of us and create terrorists. Well, that that's kind of part of it. If you kill someone's family members, especially in an Eastern context where they live in this more shame honor based society, then that's what's going to happen. It's cause and effect. It's pretty simple. That does not increase our security. That's creating terrorists that want to attack us and enemy nations. That that definitely hampers our security in a lot of ways. And we see domestically that there is a rise in things like mass shootings, for example, and police brutality that's coming out and police corruption. These are things that the public is now maybe questioning if the government really has a handle on these things the same way that maybe a few generations ago, people would have had a, a different perspective on the government and their role of security, both from an international perspective as well as a domestic perspective. And today, I think people are questioning that. And that's not really as big of a deal today. People don't put as much faith in the security that their government is offering them as they once did. Now, people still largely think that, well, if the state didn't exist, it would be anarchy and chaos and everybody would kill each other. I, I don't necessarily believe that that would be the truth, but that, that that is no reason why the state should be the ultimate monopoly on everything in your entire country. There are definitely arguments against that. But from this matter of security, it seems like they're kind of their role in security and the perspective and the view of most of the country's peoples and citizens, um, that's kind of diminishing how they view how well the government is doing on security. And moving on to money and resources and wealth, that was one of the biggest um, hands that the church had to play in 
doing different power positions and power moves and leveraging against other groups or for other groups, they had all this money and wealth. And I mentioned the fiat money system and central banking and the way that the government has all of this money. You mentioned taxation systems, and that is another very large way that the government gets a lot of money. We've talked about the corporate and government ties together. That's been brought up before where a lot of corporations are donating a lot of money to specific government officials. And so there's a lot of money that's flowing in. But the question is that we see some weakness in the dollar, especially as a global reserve currency. That's something that all nations around the world pretty much use for world trade. But that power is also starting to diminish. We see oil contracts being issued in other denominations. And we see that the massive debt levels of the US that are continuously rising, they're not looking too good. We are not going to be able to pay that off. Everybody knows it. And so when are other countries going to say, well, I don't think I'm going to loan any more money to the US. And we also have this mentality that a lot of, especially older generations, really big on the gold standard, that money really means something. There's something backing it up. Well, we don't have that today. And when you look at younger generations, and you mentioned how they're fluent with technology, they're fluent with these payment methods. They're fluent with things like cryptocurrencies, things that are outside of the scope of what government can create. So if we see that possibly the dollar loses its supremacy worldwide as a currency. And we have things like cryptocurrencies. We have things like the Libra currency that Facebook is developing. And you have all these other competitors. And you mix that with the reality of the weaknesses of our current monetary system. Uh, the government, so to say, today, the modern state, might not have as much power in regards to money, resources, wealth as we would think if this all comes to a head and they actually reap the consequences of these different aspects. And so going on to the last thing, that would be respect for authority. Well, people are changing their views of who authority is. You mentioned how people look up to experts as being the ones that know everything. And now it's more, it's, it's scientists, it's academics, it's these tech corporations that present you with all this data. You mentioned how people largely believe that if you have enough data, you can decide anything, you can fix any problem. And that is a common viewpoint that all we need is more data. All we need is smarter people. All we need is a more complex algorithm that ties all this together, and then we can solve it. Well, that's very different than saying all we need is the state, and I respect the authority of the state. It's very different to say you respect the authority of experts. And so it's really interesting that the main reasons why someone might say that, well, the state will never fail, the state will never lose its prominence, and I'm not saying that it will disintegrate, but much like the Catholic Church, at least my personal opinion, is that the state will largely lose a lot of its power, maybe a lot's a strong word, but they will definitely take a step down on the pedestal. And I believe that corporations and corporate experts might kind of take a step up on the pedestal and you might have something new that develops. I am guessing technocracy is my guess just personally, but we see that after the 30 years war, we have these new entities called nation states. That was very different than the regions that the nobility controlled. And it was very different than Christendom as a whole. It was something new, but it spawned out of 
things that were old that already existed, things like the nobility and these different regional powers. They condensed, they changed, they formed, they evolved, and we saw something new spring up out of that, and that had a huge impact on society as a whole, and those impacts we're still feeling today. We had the Enlightenment period that was largely influenced by a lot of this thought and philosophy coming out of the Reformation. And through that, we had all the revolutions, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and bringing us right into modern day. These things really have a huge impact on society. And as we've mentioned today, it's so complex. There's so many different aspects that tie together. You have the economics, you have the philosophy, you have the state and politics, you have religion, you have ideologies, you have these warring factions that all have different goals. The nobility had a different goal than the merchants, which had, they had a different goal than the church. And all these powers were playing against each other, but they were also playing with each other. And it's just really complex, a lot involved. You throw in the mix, the technology. We mentioned the printing press and the Arabic numerals, as well as today the internet and blockchain and automation. And it's just, it's crazy. And I, I'm with you. It's kind of mind-blowing when, even though when you look at first glance that, oh yeah, things are changing and yeah, there'll probably be some shifts. But when you really dig into that and look at how things are truly playing out and pitch that against a historical parallel, it's it's very... I don't know what the word is. It's interesting. It's frightening. It's exciting, but it's scary. I, I don't really know what it is. So yeah, what would be your uh, final conclusion on all of this? I really do think that we we are on the cusp of a, of a lot of change that, you know, we're, we're living through the cycle. And I would be very much shocked if it, you know, probably within the, our lifespan or the lifespan of our children's that things will be quite different than what, say, our, the, our parents' generation came to expect. And I think that that's, it's, it's in many ways terrifying that when you just, you know that something's coming and you don't know what that's going to be and i think that you can feel the that angst out there that people know that things are changing and maybe they don't you know it's not as thought out as we're you know that people have thought through it as as much as we've thought through you know discussed it today but people know you know intrinsically these historical trends and people can tell when you know things are on the move and they are definitely on the move now and we can see that they're you know th that the historical trends show that yeah definitely i'm I've got one little small glint of hope here that um, will keep us from having to end on such a depressing note, and that would be <laughs> the Anabaptists. So you you largely had this um, false dialectic, I would say, between the Catholics and the Protestants, where you're either a Catholic or you're a Protestant, and that's it. And Protestants, by that they mean Lutheran or Calvinist, largely. And so people were presented with this view. You can be one or you could be the other. Just like today, you can either be on the left or you can be on the right. And you're going to be one or the other. Of course, that's just the way it is. And uh, we have these Anabaptists that came along and they had a different view. They were a, a third party candidate, so to say, and they largely rejected the systems of both the state and the church. 
and they kind of did their own thing. Now, they didn't have a huge influence, I would say, not at least to the extent that these other aspects we're mentioning today had, but they had a huge influence on themselves and on their communities and on more of a local level. So largely, they would separate themselves as a community from the rest of the peoples around them, and they would try to be as self-sufficient as possible. We mentioned some of these traits with early monastic movements as well. And when these Anabaptists did this, they could grow their own food, they could build their own homes, they had a strong sense of community, and they knew everyone that lived in their small communities, they helped each other, a lot of things were done communally, but if you look from a societal perspective, they were very individualistic. They were setting apart from the social norms and doing their own thing and through an individualistic perspective on interpreting the Bible, really. They wanted to just look at the Bible as a, basically with everything else being a blank slate, there's no tradition, there's no interpretations, there's no commentaries, nothing applies. Let's just read it and do what it says. And this is what they came up with. And so when I bring that forward to a modern example, I would say this would largely be something like a, maybe a libertarian type movement where people are looking at these ideals of liberty and of freedom and of natural rights and things like this, and they're saying, well, let's get rid of the tradition that's associated with this. Let's get rid of what everybody else has commented about this and what these different states and politicians say, and let's just look at it for what it is. What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to have liberty? And let's live this out. Now, I would say that largely that's going to have to be something like the Anabaptists, where maybe some communities might break apart. Maybe you have something like a secession movement, maybe in the United States, where you have a county or a state or something that decides to do its own thing. Or maybe it's just a community, kind of like the Anabaptists did, where they kind of start their own community and do their own thing there. But in doing so, we saw that the Anabaptists shielded themselves from some of the negative effects with all of these changes, all of this unrest that was going on, they were kind of independent of that in many ways. And uh, on the other side, because of this, they were largely persecuted and kicked out of many different countries, and they definitely had their struggles. But I wonder maybe if those people that are more on the alternative side if maybe they do focus on things like self-sufficiency, on uh, community aspects such as maybe farmers markets and getting to know people, real people in their community, not just having a million Facebook friends and you know 5,000 Twitter followers, but actually knowing real people that you can call on the phone or go to their house and then come help you with something. If people build up that sense of community and build up that sense of independence from that perspective, maybe we see that some people or some groups might um, have some hope and might shield themselves from some of the negative aspects while the turmoil ensues around them. But uh, I'm with you. I do see that there is turmoil that is going on and that will go on. And it's yeah, kind of scary to think about what what society might look like and how this might play out. The Thirty Years' War was very disastrous. That was a very big deal, like you mentioned. And 
I, I definitely don't want to see anything like that today. Maybe we'll get lucky and it'll be something like a major digital war or digital problem where everybody's digital history gets erased and no one can access the internet. Oh no, and everybody freaks out. And you could see that playing out. That could happen. But hopefully it's something that's not life-threatening where millions of people die. But regardless of what it is, it is something that destabilizes the current system. Systems change, systems shift, empires rise, empires fall. And it's part of the cycle. History in some ways is cyclical and we will see something like this play out. So I guess from my perspective, if we take a fairly practical view, maybe we can look at some of these aspects of how they played out and how different groups and different players um, played their cards, so to say. If we look at that and learn from that, maybe we as individuals and we as communities can maybe put some of this into practice and hopefully maybe protect ourselves, shield ourselves, prepare ourselves for the potentials that might come. And they might not come. We don't know. History, again, doesn't repeat. This could be something that blows over. But uh, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think that's the case. I think that that these moves and these movements are, they're really going. The snowball is gaining steam and it's not just going to stop. So yeah, I would say that maybe there is some hope and that um, I, I do agree that largely bad things are probably coming in many different ways, as well as progress in many different ways. Even though you had the rise of the nation state and the Thirty Years' War and all these people died and nobles were taking over power, you had absolute monarchies and a lot of things that people look back on as being negative, you also had large um, aspects of prosperity in the economies and in how people lived their everyday lives. And today we see that if technology progresses Things are going to be easier. Things are going to be more convenient. We're going to have positive aspects. But if that comes at the cost of freedom, of liberty, of being able to make your own decisions and not being subject to the whims of some political power or some database or algorithm, then I don't know if that's really worth it. Or even if it is, like, how do we negate the negative aspects of that? And so that that's kind of what I am hoping for, is that we can learn from these historic time periods, these historic events and peoples and groups, and maybe apply that to what's going on today so that we can get a little more practical with this information instead of it just being an intellectual stimulation. It's something that maybe we can apply to our lives and use and that can benefit us as individuals. And hopefully overall, it ends up benefiting society as a whole. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal is hopefully things, you know, the transition's much smoother than it's been in times past and that we have a a transition to something that works and, and because like we've been saying this whole episode these changes always happen and m many times the changes have a lot of eggs have had to been cracked so hopefully you know with maybe the technology will help in making these transitions smoother and you know a lot less disruptive for regular people's lives. Yeah, yeah, we can definitely hope so. So I, I think largely we have 
pretty much covered everything that we had planned on covering. We've gone over many different things, many different topics, many different perspectives, and hopefully this adds a lot of information to the listeners as well as stimulation intellectually, as well as some things that they can be thinking about and chewing on and applying and that kind of stuff. So hopefully we've provided that. I think we have gone over a broad wealth of information here. So with with that and wrapping things up and concluding, is there anything else that you wanted to mention or comment on? We've covered a lot of issues today. And I think that, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of things that we could go into a lot more depth. But I think as an overview of 1500 years of history, we did pretty well, really. I mean, you're talking about about 2000 years of history and and analyzing and interpreting that. I think we did pretty well with that today. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So uh, thank you for coming on and helping me solve the world's problems one social issue at a time. (laughs) And thank you for your insight and providing us with this historical perspective and these overviews. And you are definitely very well educated in this time period and what's going on and what the different players were doing. And so thank you very much for doing this with me and collaborating with me and being a part of this project. Oh, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure and um, I'm glad to have been able to participate. Well, this concludes the interview that I did with Stephen Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I had a lot of fun with this interview, and I think that we definitely hit a lot of interesting content and very relevant content, so that's really good. I am glad and happy with the way that it turned out, so hopefully you have enjoyed it as well. I want to give you a heads up for the next interview that I did that we'll be releasing at least, and that will be the one with Benjamin Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast, or Wittenberg to Westphalia, it depends on how you pronounce things. But this interview that's upcoming with Benjamin Jacobs was another very long interview, and I actually have yet to finish the editing and splitting that up. I'm not even sure how many parts it will be, but it was a roughly three to three and a half hour long interview in total, so even longer than this one I did with Stephen Guerra. And so we'll see. That will be multiple sections, needless to say. And I will, I guess, let you know when I release the next episode how many parts that will be because I should know by then. And that's another one that we talked about a lot of stuff. He's another history podcaster that covers this time period where you have Stephen Guerra that focuses on the church and the papacy and how they were involved with politics and economics and all the different things going on. Benjamin Jacobs' podcast focuses on the more of a sociological standpoint of what was going on and how society was changing and the different events and what it was like for a common person and all of these types of things. And obviously the church is involved because they were the dominant player in this time period, but he has just a different focus, definitely. And so we cover obviously different things. And so that's another one that we covered a long time period with a history-focused podcaster, so it's just long. There's a lot to it. But we get into a whole lot of stuff. He 
is not quite as on board with a lot of my parallels as most other people. And so I do get a little pushback, which is kind of nice. And it's good to get other perspectives. And he helps clarify some of them too. So that was pretty cool as well. As an interesting side note, Benjamin Jacobs and Stephen Guerra have done podcast guest appearances on each other's show in the past. So that's also interesting. That's how I heard about the History of the Papacy podcast was an episode that his podcast, the History of the Papacy podcast, was mentioned on the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. And that's what got me turned on to that. So that's kind of a cool, interesting note. And here I am interviewing one host and then the next host. So stay tuned for that podcast episode that will be upcoming next, part one of my interview with Benjamin Jacobs. And I am sure that you will enjoy it as well. That was another one of my favorite interviews that I've done. I've really enjoyed all of these. So it's been a lot of fun doing these. Hopefully it's been a lot of fun listening to them and enjoying them from your perspective as well. So speaking of which, Thank you very much for being here, for downloading this podcast, this episode, listening in all the way through to the end. Hopefully, you have listened to, at a bare minimum, the entirety of what I've released so far for Season 2. Ideally, you have listened to all of Season 1 first, so you get the full context, all the information, all of the background coverage of the different institutions that we have in our society, how these systems have evolved through time from their origins to now, different corruptions involved, and what effect this has had on us today, mainly with our governmental and monetary and education systems that we have that currently are a little screwed up on all accounts. And so season one covers all of that. And season two, as you know, is covering this parallel, this comparison, this historical time period that is very similar to things that are going on today between the Reformation and the printing press and the anti-establishment movements as a whole, really, that sentiment, as well as the internet and the effect that our technology and this digital age has on that and how that is a catalyst for the things that are happening now and the changes and the evolutions that are occurring in our modern day and what's coming up. Whenever I finally get done with all of the interviews that I'm doing, it definitely is a lot of content that is in this interview format, but then I will be getting back to doing releases that are just me presenting specific, fairly detailed content, and I'll be focusing on one analogy at a time, one parallel at a time, and really playing that out in how they were similar how that situation evolved historically, and then looking at how that's evolving now and what that means for, number one, understanding what's going on and preparing for how things are occurring, as well as preparing for the future and how things are likely to play out based on some of the aspects of that parallel that we can really draw from and count on fairly reliably. We can't Uh, follow out examples exactly. That's not the way history works. But there are aspects that are 
fairly safe to draw from, at least from a macro perspective, to get some of the themes and some of the trends and things like that and how things evolved from that standpoint. So it should include some practical knowledge as well as historical information and lots of different things. Basically, a lot of the stuff that I'm covering here in these interviews, it's more of the same, but more specific. It'll be more detailed, and that will be the rest of season two that is upcoming in many episodes from now. So with that, I will leave you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the ratings and reviews. That really helps a lot. Thank you very much to the patrons who are donating their hard-earned money towards this show, this podcast, this project that I'm doing. It is extremely encouraging and extremely helpful. It covers all of my hosting fees so far. And so that's something that I'm very grateful for. Just so you know and have this in mind, if there are more people that subscribe on as patrons and are willing to donate money, that money will likely be used for audiobooks and research materials. That's something that costs a lot of money that adds up very quickly. I can go through a book in a matter of a few days in audiobook format, but that ends up being many, many audiobooks over the course of a season. And so I can get a lot of those for free, but there are many that are specific that I really want to do that cost money. And I can't do them all because I would be spending hundreds of dollars every season just on books. And that's just not very feasible for me right now. So if someone is joining on from this point on like i said my hosting fees are covered by the patrons which is wonderful and so the next aspect that will be covered will be these research materials and audiobook costs and so that will be very helpful as well obviously and i'll be able to get more specific information and stuff that is um, very detailed and just specifically what I want instead of having to choose from the free options and only buying a book every now and then. So that's what it will go towards if you are interested in supporting that way. Otherwise, if you would spread the word about the podcast or spread the word about the things that are discussed in this podcast, those are equally good options, as well as leaving a rating and review if you have not done that yet. You can go to the website as well or follow me on Twitter, and there are just many different ways to get involved. Send me an email. I enjoy all of these different things. I appreciate all of these different forms of support and communication. So thank you very much. Come back next time for the beginning of the next interview. And with that, I will leave you. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you.